Welcome back to the Goal Set Mindset Podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Dustin Jones to discuss the value of building strength and resilience through aging. Dustin is a physical therapist, coach, and educator who is changing the game in how older adults train in the gym, rehab in the clinic, and ultimately maximize their functional capacity. Dustin has a super cool journey from treating athletes in a sports clinic to finding himself in home health, applying those same training principles with people well into their 70s and 80s. Dustin is the founder of Stronger Life, a CrossFit-style gym designed specifically for people 55 and older. Listen in to hear why we should be spending more time applying fitness to our geriatrics and less of it on the already fit population. Enjoy this great conversation with Dustin. What's going on, everybody? And welcome back to the Goal Set Mindset Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dustin Jones. Dustin, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. This is exciting. I'm excited to chat with you. Thank you. Same here. So before we dive into it, if you could just introduce yourself and tell everybody about your journey and what you do. Oh, man. Okay, so my name is Dustin Jones. I'm in Lexington, Kentucky uh, currently. If you like bourbon, uh, fast horses, that's that's where I'm at. Uh, I'm a doctor of physical therapy, graduated in 2011. Currently, I'm mainly in the role of a coach uh, doing a community-based fitness program for older adults. Uh, we say 55 and up, it's Stronger Life, but uh, mainly folks kind of in their 65 to 75 range. Uh, and that uh, was greatly influenced by a lot of my time spent in home health. So much of my career as a clinician has been in home health, seeing how um, folks operate on their in their day to day lives and to see how they were treated by different clinicians uh, to see that a lot of these folks are handled with kid gloves, basically, uh, where we think that they may be too fragile, that they are going to inst- instantaneously break if we give them too heavy of a weight. Uh, despite these folks uh, that are going to benefit tremendously from uh, resistance training and properly dosed exercise. And so a lot of my experience um, and influence has definitely been at home health arena of applying uh, some strength and conditioning principles to these folks that may be considered a little more medically fragile, if you will, um, and, and just seeing some, some pretty good results. So that, that's kind of been my journey. Home health really influenced me tremendously. Uh, and, and now mainly giving a lot of my attention towards the area of fitness uh, with Stronger Life. Along that journey, I've also, um, I also started teaching continuing education with the Institute of Clinical Excellence. So I'll teach a lot of things uh, that, you know, we're learning in the gym with Stronger Life uh, to a lot of clinicians uh, for them to apply it across different settings. Awesome. Yeah. Institute of Clinical Excellence is how I heard about Dustin and I follow a bunch of awesome PTs from that crew. So if you're a PT or a PT student like myself, definitely give them a follow. But mm-hmm. Dustin, I think that's so cool because coming from a strength and conditioning background myself, I know you um, also participate in CrossFit and you have your certification mm-hmm. with them. I feel like it's not very typical for a athletic person, if you will, to become interested in working with older adults. Mm-hmm. So what kinds of things got you interested in applying these strength and conditioning principles specifically with the older adult, as opposed to working with athletes or, you know, more healthy fit people? Yeah, great question. Um, that, that will require a little deeper dive in, into my background for sure. So 
before my home health days, um, I would, I would say I was very, I was a very stereotypical PT student, a hopeful PT, if you will. Typical in some ways, right? You may, you may feel this way. Some of the listeners may as well. I had a lot of uh, classmates for sure, where I was a pretty active individual in high school, played sports. I got hurt, worked with a PT. He was like, oh yeah, that's it. That's what I want to do. So I went, uh, I pursued my athletic training certification undergrad, did the whole CSCS thing. I was kind of going down that route of being like the sports PT. I wanted to work in the fun, sexy outpatient orthopedic clinic, working with the local team, high school, college, whatever. I was kind of going that route and ended up uh, in a position where I was doing that same work that I thought I was going to do for the rest of my career, working with athletes, mainly runners. And it was a really great situation. Uh, Learned a ton, mainly working with those folks. But I ended up getting fired from that position. And I took a travel contract in the middle of nowhere, West Virginia, Romney, West Virginia is in a skilled nursing facility. So as you can imagine, being in this outpatient clinic that, that I was enjoying, there were some, you know, downsides to it for sure, but working with a lot of runners, uh, kind of going that trajectory. And then I found myself in a sniff in the middle of nowhere. And for a lot of folks that may be listening, you can only imagine how uh, frustrating that may be. Never saw myself in a sniff. Uh, but in that situation, in that particular uh, rehab facility, I just basically treated those folks like I would the athletes in the clinic uh, or the runners as well. And they just responded so much quicker. It was incredible, more or quicker than what I was used to kind of in the outpatient setting. And so these folks are really sensitive to higher intensity activities. And what I also found in that situation was they were really given the same cookie cutter program, regardless of their individual deficits, uh, by other other clinicians. And this this contract um, was at three different locations. And what I saw is everyone, despite their different deficits or diagnoses, they all three locations, they were getting the same program. That was very troubling to me. Um, so combine that and then seeing how responsive these folks were to the same principles I would apply to the athlete, it was it became addictive. I became addicted to that progress, that quick progress that you can get. And then I've said, all right, this is it. Like, I love working with these folks. They're great uh, to be around. I learn a ton from them. Uh, and it's a very fulfilling area to, to specialize in. So that's when I kind of took that uh, 180 degree turn, some would say, uh, from kind of the sports realm to, to geriatrics. Yeah. And wow, I didn't know that part of your story. So that's super cool to hear. Mm-hmm. And I can totally relate to how your journey started being an athlete and you know, always enjoying working with athletes myself too, but Mm -hmm. it's such a good story for PTs to hear, especially because we, especially like in school, there's almost this pressure to decide what you want to do and who you want to work with. When in reality, we really need to hear more of be open-minded, understand that you might change your mind and that's okay. But Mm -hmm. I agree with you. I mean, I'm on clinical now and I am really growing fond of the older adult, I will say. And especially using my strength and conditioning principles. And um, like you mentioned, it just, it goes so much further, you know, with the Mm -hmm. older adult. But the message I really want to discuss here is the fact that older adults can be loaded. They can Mm -hmm. do higher intense exercise and they probably should. So can you just speak briefly on like the sorts of physiological changes that occur with aging 
and what kinds of problems those tend to lead to? Yeah, yeah, which there, this is a really interesting area of research that is becoming more and more clear in terms of what, what changes are actually age-related and what changes are more related to deconditioning. Because there's a lot of things that we assume are going to change over time or uh, decline, if you will, that we just chalk it up to their birth date. Oh, they're just getting older. They're X, you know, 76, 85, whatever. Of course, they're going to have, you know, decreased performance, exercise capacity, decreased power strength, all that stuff. But it may, a lot of it may not necessarily be as age-related as, as we think. So we do see some age-related changes, right? So like in terms of uh, the musculoskeletal system, we definitely see a preferential loss of those type 2 muscle fibers as compared to type 1. So losing some of those fast twitch muscle fibers, uh, which is going to make it a little more challenging to produce force quickly, aka power, uh, we do see that for sure. So power typically will decline quicker than strength with age. However, the older adults, especially masters athletes, are really challenging this narrative. The folks that continue to train hard, follow those recommended exercise guidelines, see a slower decline. You also see a similar uh, situation uh, in terms of the vestibular system, seemingly separate, right? Like from the musculoskeletal system, but even someone's vestibular function that we do see some age-related changes over time. The folks that are more physically active, that continue to train, that continue to exercise regularly, their vestibular uh, function, functional decline is a lot less or a lot slower than folks that are demonstrating sedentary behaviors. And the same for the cardiovascular system as well. So we do see a general decline in performance over time with age, but with many of those age-related changes, they can be altered with folks that pursue these exercise guidelines and, and maintain that high level of physical activity. And so my, the partner that I teach with, Christina Previtt, uh, which I, you got to meet her at CSM, right? Um, I did. Yeah, she is absolutely amazing. She filled both of her lecture halls and got all of us fired up. It was so cool. That's awesome. Yeah, that's that's a regular day for Christina. She's an amazing individual, but in our course, modern management of the older adult with ice, um, she'll, she'll speak to this really well in terms of is normal aging in quotes, as we perceive it, is it, is it normal or is it just deconditioning? And that's a great question to ask and dig into. And what a lot of the research nowadays is showing, particularly if you're looking at cohorts of masters athletes is a lot of those normal age related changes may just be deconditioning. And when you hear that D word deconditioning, you think this, I know I think this from the strength and conditioning side, like, well, if it's deconditioned, I can condition it, right? Exactly. Let's <laughs> I can do something it. about it. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's kind of a segue into my next question of like, with the older adult. So we know that you can almost prevent or at least prolong some of these changes from occurring when you're physically active. So we see in those masters athletes who have continuously trained that they don't really have these same problems, but for somebody who has not participated in a lot of training, and maybe you see this at your gym, you got a 65 year old who's starting to feel unsteady, weak, whatever it mm -hmm. is, can they progress or is it only main, like maintaining that can be achieved with this exercise? That's a great, great question that if you look in the area of frailty research, in that area, you're going to see that question come up a lot. 
if it's someone that for, for me, it's stronger life, all those folks are community, independent community dwelling, older adults. They're the same folks that are probably going to come into outpatient orthopedics, right? Those folks, they, even if we would consider them to be deconditioned, they are going to respond very well. They're going to respond very quickly. They will progress very quickly. Uh, dosage still needs to be dialed in, right? Because we don't want to exceed their capacity or tissue capacity, but they respond very well. It's when you get really far to on the frailty or spectrum of frailty. And when we, if you think of the term frailty, for those uh, that may not have studied that in school, or it's kind of a, a vague term, when you hear the word frailty, there's ways to objectively measure it. But what you really want to think about is these folks are vulnerable to external stressors. The folks that maybe get COVID-19 and they end up on a vent versus the person with less comorbidities, a person that's more resilient and robust that may get COVID-19 and they may get a little sick. They may go to the hospital, but they probably won't go on a vent, for example. They're a little more robust and resilient to external stressors. You can measure that in different ways with frailty. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but folks that are considered on that far end of frailty, very frail individuals, those are the individuals where the question is, are we just maintaining here versus are they actually going to progress? So I think the clinicians that are working in home health uh, that are working in skilled nursing facilities, places that require high acuity of care, that is a much more important question. Oftentimes, folks on that far end of, of the frailty spectrum, we are maintaining, we're preventing a decline, which is still valuable, right? Definitely still valuable. Um, but their prognosis to progress may not be as high as folks that are not as frail, if you will. That's still being re researched and clearly defined um, where that kind of cutoff is. Um, but, but that's what I would say far into that spectrum, you're probably focused more on maintaining, but you're, we're still trying to achieve or pursue intensity because they're still going to benefit, but it may just be prevention of decline versus seeing these crazy, uh, progressions and changes. Gotcha. And yeah, like you mm -hmm. said, I mean, that's super valuable for a patient who is at that end stage frailty. If you can just keep mm -hmm. them from going over the edge. Um, yeah. so in terms of the non frail or at least not severely frail older adult, mm -hmm. When we think about our general exercise adaptations, I'm talking strength, neurological adaptations, muscle hypertrophy, cardiovascular endurance, those sorts of properties, even in a 65, 70, 80 year old, have you seen mm -hmm. that those can be improved with training? Oh, hundred percent can definitely be improved. And from, from my observation, when, especially if you're used to working with trained individuals, it will improve more sig significantly, but, and also quicker. They're very sensitive, especially with, with this current generation. Some of them are trained individuals. They exercise regularly. A lot of this stuff isn't necessarily new to them. They've been doing it for a while, but I think anyone that's spent time in the clinic, the vast majority of folks that you're probably working with, unless you're in some very special part of the country where they're overwhelmingly active, which where you're in Scranton? Uh, I'm, where, in, where I'm in New York currently, but school okay. in Scranton. Yeah. Okay. Got it. I'm in Kentucky. Spent most of my time in West Virginia, central Ohio. So where, where I am, uh, exercising being active is not terribly common uh, with that cohort. And so what that means is those folks are going to be very sensitive to those interventions. They're going to show change relatively quickly and show some pretty impressive progress. 
more so than, than the trained individual, uh, which is really cool to see from the clinical side of things and the fulfillment side of things as a, a clinician, but then also from the confidence side of things for those people and the, those patients, very powerful for them to basically do things that they thought were impossible at this stage of the game. Uh, which, which is always pretty incredible to see whether you can do that in the gym or the clinic, wherever you are, uh, a lot of folks, you know, we can achieve that. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's actually a conversation I had um, in my clinic. I would agree. The majority of patients I'm seeing are not physically active and most of them don't really want to be. But Mm -hmm. when I get the older adult who is active, who, you know, goes to the gym in their townhouse complex or likes to go walking. I totally lean into that. And I've been having conversations, Mm. um, spreading those principles saying like, you know, you can go a little heavier with the weight if you feel comfortable and you will get stronger and this and that. But one of the things, you know, that I've heard you say also is this concept that fitness can be wasted on the fit or is often Mm. wasted on the fit. I've actually heard this even more from Julie Brower working more mm-hmm. in those acute settings. So can you just speak upon that a little bit and what that message is all about? Yeah. So just to, to give the, the hat tip, the first time I heard that, so that's a direct quote uh, from the former CEO owner of CrossFit, Greg Glassman, who a uh, brilliant individual, polarizing figure for sure, for some th- terrible things that he said, but he said that quote of much of fitness is wasted on the fit. And it's really interesting thing when you start to dig into it and folks that will apply these strength and conditioning principles, they're able to modify and scale activities to uh, someone that is not considered in quotes fit. If you're able to apply that and you think about the percentage change, how quickly you can show change, but then also the implications of that change, you compare that to someone that is a relatively fit individual and you apply that same method of training, the changes that you're going to get in the fit individual are going to be far less than the untrained individual or the less fit. If I can get someone that is not considered fit, I'm throwing up the air quotes every time I say fit, because that's kind of an arbitrary term in some ways, right? that's not fit. And I am able to improve their strength, their power, uh, their aerobic capacity. The implications of that may be that they can continue to live independently in their home, as opposed to having to go into an assisted living facility or a skilled nursing facility. They will be able to continue to participate in their activities, their uh, groups, their communities, uh, that kind of social um, connection that they will continue to maintain it has such a big influence on those measures of quality of life as opposed to the already fit individual. Now don't hear me saying that fit people don't need to continue being fit, right? Like I'm still working out. I'm still trying to be as fit as possible because I know it's helping me right now. It's going to help me in the future for sure. But that quote really challenges uh, our perception of who's going to benefit the most. And then when you have an objective analysis of kind of the fitness wellness industry, it makes the industry look very lopsided and and completely backwards because so much of the facilities, the marketing, the products, the services are tailored to folks that may need it the least, the healthy 20 some to 40 some year olds, as opposed to the folks that may be north of 65, that could probably benefit the most. And that right there is what is really driving stronger life is that we want to create that 
community, that home for these individuals that we know are going to benefit the most. The 20-some-year-old, the 30-some-year-old, they've got dozens upon dozens of options to get fit within one mile radius. Uh, here in Lexington, I'm sure where you are as well, you could literally close your eyes and just put your finger anywhere on Google Maps and you're going to find a fitness facility for you in walking distance. Older adults don't have that, yet they could benefit the most. So that's what I think of when I, when I hear, hear that quote. Yeah, wow. Julie Brower does speak to that really well as well from her acute care side of things. Uh, yeah, too. it's so powerful and it's so true. And I mean, as PTs, that's what we're all about is quality of life, getting people better. And what better population to make the biggest difference with than the more vulnerable, you know, older adults. Mm -hmm. But like you mentioned, there are a lot of barriers to older adults getting fit. A lot of it is that mentality, you know, the cultural norms around mm -hmm. older adults taking it easy. But in terms of exercise, like, how would you recommend an older adult start to become more physically active in a sustainable way? Or what sorts of exercise is going to give them the most bang for their buck? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. So I would say from if we're speaking to clinicians, I think this is a really important conversation to have is the introduction of exercise is really more of an art than a science, because it's easy to remember the ACSM recommended guidelines, right? We know the frequencies, we know the duration, we know the intensities uh, to drive adaptation. And if you try and achieve those right out the gate to get this quote unquote optimal dosage, you're going to take someone uh, that is already probably intimidated, fearful, scared of exercise and just push them in that same direction. They'll probably get a lot of muscle soreness. Uh, it may not be a pleasant experience and it's very difficult to get someone to buy in uh, if you're going hundred percent right out the gate. So we'll speak to this a lot in, in our courses of leveraging intentional underdosage initially. This is great in the clinic. I use it in the gym as well, that if I've got someone that has relatively low physical activity levels, this is new to them, whatever it is, but they're, they're not very active. I'm not worried about intensity. I'm just getting them moving, but I'm going to make sure that it's not a high intensity. So they aren't going to get a, a terrible case of DOMS that they're going to feel good leaving just to really get them hooked initially. Once they're in, they're bought in. I know that they're, they're uh, interested and engaging. Then we start to work towards that, that optimal dosage. But initially, it's intentional under dosage. We're not staying there, though. That's, that's a kicker. We're going we're gonna to progress. So in terms of specific exercises, I don't really focus too much on that. I focus more on kind of the how I'm introducing it. And I want to make sure it's not too challenging at first. But then after, you know, a week to two weeks, then we're starting to dial it up as I've built that trust, that therapeutic alliance. Um, and I know they're more bought in. Nice. You can really lose someone initially, which I have several times. Yeah. Well, I love that point. And that really resonated a lot with me because like you said, like as PTs, coaches, we have very analytical minds. We want to focus mm -hmm. on the numbers and the percentages and all that stuff. But it's really about becoming creative and yeah, introducing the person to that activity in a way that's going to excite them. Mm -hmm. And I've experienced that firsthand too. Like I mentioned in the last couple of weeks, working with a lot of older adults, there's been times that I have pushed it too hard and they come in and they say they're in pain and we mm -hmm. talk about it. And it turns out it's soreness. Yeah. And part of my brain is like, 
that's okay. You're sore. You know, that's already yeah. working out. But then I'm like, okay, we'll take a little easier. And you saying that just, yeah, it definitely makes mm-hmm. that point that it's gotta be, we gotta get them on the wagon first and then yeah. continue to progress from there. Now, in terms of exercising with older adults, like, is there any downside or any potential reason why somebody who's older shouldn't partake in exercise? Like any precautions? Not really, right? (laughs) I mean, if you're not in an ICU with an unstable cardiovascular condition or neurological condition, I'm saying unstable, right? Because there's a lot of folks in ICUs with relatively stable conditions that need to be moving. But when you look at the absolute contraindications to exercise, these folks aren't walking around in the community. They're on some, under some very intensive care in unstable situations. So the vast majority of folks are going to, to benefit. Now, it's our job to be able to acknowledge maybe more uh, precautions. We'll, we'll kind of call those yellow lights, if you will, uh, and be able to monitor those if you can, which vital signs are great, right? Checking heart rate, uh, blood pressure, oxygen saturation, uh, rating of perceived exertion, just getting a, a good objective idea of, of how people are doing, how they're responding to, to an activity goes a long way to feel a little bit safer about pushing folks. Um, but, but yeah, I've, I've had maybe one person where it was an absolute contraindication uh, and it was in a very unstable medical situation. Um, so I'd say the vast majority of folks, yeah, let's get them moving for sure. Awesome. Good to hear that. I mean, another big barrier that I'm thinking of, again, just picturing Mm -hmm. the patients that I'm working with on a regular basis is pain. A lot of older Mm -hmm. adults, they've got aches and pains and arthritis and all this stuff. So what would you say in terms of working through that with exercise is pain, something that's kind of just going to be there. Is it going to improve with exercise? Like how do you manage that with clients in your gym? Yeah. So if pain is on board, which for some, some clinicians listening to this or, or students, you're going to find out there's certain settings where pain isn't necessarily the primary driver to PT, right? Like you're an outpatient right now. Most outpatient orthopedic clinics, the primary driver is that folks are in knee pain, hip pain, shoulder pain, back pain, whatever, right? Oh, yeah. All the prescriptions that I get for all my evals, hip pain. I'm like, all right. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) But then you can do home health and pain is not often the primary driver. It's a functional issue. It's it's a lack of capacity. Uh, Skilled nursing facility was, was like that. Uh, not everyone, obviously, but but you're going to find that pain is not the primary driver for every physical therapy patient. It, it fluctuates a ton based on on setting. But if pain is on board, this is where how can I, I love to ask the question, how can we get this person moving without increasing their symptoms, uh, increasing to a certain extent? Right. Like we want to maintain their irritability maybe staying in the same area or going up a point or two on a pain scale, for example, is, is okay. But in those sharp increases in pain irritability, we are trying to avoid. So how can we get the blood pumping, the lungs working, just get people moving without increasing their pain. So if it's a, a joint specific issue, how can we have some type of exercise that may not be challenging that knee or that hip, for example, this is where 
a lot of the big equipment, expensive equipment that you have in your outpatient clinic or different rehab hospitals are really helpful. Uh, you know, the bike ergs, uh, rowers, new steps, some of those types of, uh, things are really helpful here because you can just get the blood pumping, get the endorphins rushing, reduce their overall irritability, uh, and not necessarily, uh, have to go through, if you will, that painful joint, that knee or that hip. So I think general movement, trying to avoid irritability is one. If we are, if we, we do want to move that painful area more than likely, how can we do that in a way that is respectful of their irritability? And so this is where a lot of scaling and modifying different activities really comes into play. So let's say we're trying to get someone to squat, uh, improve, you know, their lower extremity strength, basically, you know, help them get up out of a chair a little bit easier. Let's say if they're really painful towards uh, the bottom of that squat, when they are going, you know, into those greater uh, range of motion of, of knee flexion, for example, hip flexion, what if we just shorten that range of motion? to a range that's, that's relatively tolerable. What if we do that shortened range of motion and load it up? So they get the experience of holding some external resistance. We're still going to get that stimulus uh, to their muscles, to their bones, to have some of that positive adaptation uh, and respecting their irritability. While we're still trying to progress, lean into that a little bit by increasing that range of motion if their irritability allows. But I think of like taking uh, exercise that you know is going to correlate to their goal. How can we mold it and modify it while being respectful to their mobility? Range of motion is just one example, but more, one of the more common ones. Um, so in like in the context of stronger life, what will typically happen because it's a group, a lot of it is group-based classes is we'll have a workout of the day, which is very stereotypical in a, a lot of uh, any fitness facility uh, whether it's a CrossFit or Orange Sea or whatever, everyone kind of has this workout that everyone's going to do. We'll have that workout, but when you look out on the floor, every person may be doing a different variation of that particular activity or movement uh, based on what they can do uh, on, on their irritability. So that's kind of how we think about things at Stronger Life, but how you can probably think about things in the clinic or hospital as well. That's awesome. And I want to book a plane ticket to Kentucky right now so I can come experience stronger <laughs> life. Cause wow, through social media, I just love, love, love seeing, and you post those things, those different modifications of, you know, how you get people doing what it is that you're really looking for driving that adaptation, but within a way that they can tolerate it. Yeah. So I like that point too. And, you know, a lot of us have a picture in our head, whether we are well-trained or not, mm -hmm. when we picture exercise, we close our eyes and picture, there's something in our brain that we think of as strength training exercise, mm -hmm. but understanding that exercise and resistance training can look different for everybody. Oh, hundred percent. So finding, you know, like you mentioned, a skilled physical therapist who has the knowledge, but also the willingness to, mm -hmm. you know, create programs in this way is huge. And like we mentioned, I mean, there's no reason not to do this stuff, right? Oh, hundred percent. And I would, I would argue too, like when you think of, because so many people, they push back of like, why should I do this? This could be dangerous, right? Like I could hurt this particular individual. I, I think it's really important for us to consider the other side of that coin. Think about these individuals that a lot of folks who we're working with, they're kind of flirting with that line of independence. They're struggling with a lot of their activities of daily living. They're struggling to do things that they care about. 
They have limited capacity. They're flirting with that line of maybe being able to stay in their home or potential decline or a fall. It may not happen yet, but they're kind of flirting with that line. And then they come to see us and we're going to give them adductor ball squeezes and ankle pumps and underdose long heart quads. Like that's risky. That's dangerous. If you think about that opportunity where we could drive adaptation and get them more towards independence and resilience, yet we take that opportunity and give them this cookie cutter underdose program. And that's why we'll harp on a lot that the most dangerous exercise that you could prescribe individuals is probably the ankle pump. Even though many perceive it as the safest, we can make a strong argument that the ankle pumps are super dangerous and very risky with a lot of individuals because we're wasting that opportunity to give them something that's going to be more potent to get them where, where they want to be ankle pumps. They're dangerous. So I'm scared (laughs) to death of ankle pumps. You know, I don't disagree with you. And I mean, I, the best is when the patient's doing the ankle pump, let's say they're doing like a eversion and they're just hip externally rotating on the table and their whole body's (laughs) moving. I'm like, Oh God, please. We're flailing limbs at this point. You know, it's just (laughs) exactly. So, wow. But I mean, so eye opening. and you're speaking about all of this from experience, you know, you were in the outpatient, you were in the home health and like loading and creating a stimulus that's actually going to facilitate change. Mm -hmm. It works, you know, and like you said, monitoring heart rate, monitoring vitals when you need to, but there it's a lot scarier to think about what could happen from not moving rather than what might happen from moving. Right. Right. And, you know, something that's coming to mind for me right now is I have a lot of people in my life, not just in the clinic, but personally who Mm -hmm. are in their fifties doing fine, not super physically active, but like, what would you say to a person in terms of, cause to me, when I think about all this stuff, getting on top of exercise and loading your body and mm-hmm. creating the stimulus is an investment in the future when you get older, right? Like, mm-hmm. what would you say to like the 55 year old who's thinking, I know I should work out, but I just don't know if I need it. You know, like, why does it matter to do it before you get to the point of mm. frailty? Yeah, that's great. A great conversation that I think a lot of folks, especially in that stage are experiencing what could happen. So we have a lot of folks that are in that 55, 65 range where they still have parents that are living and they are seeing what happens if you don't get on top of your fitness. So oftentimes I don't have to say a word, they're seeing it and they're, it's driving them to stronger life. But for someone that doesn't experience that, I would really harp on the fitter you get now and continue to pursue, right? It's not just a one-time deal, but the fitter you are now, the easier your life's going to be just flat out. The stronger you are, the better your aerobic capacity, the stronger your bones are, the more fit that you get right now, life is just easier. You're going to maintain your independence. You're going to be able to do the things that you want to do, whatever that is. It's going to be cheaper as well, the fitter, the fitter you are now. So it's almost like you're building that bank, uh, that bank account. You're putting those deposits in that savings account. You're going to have a big old savings account if you get super fit. And so you'll be able to live off that for, for a good chunk of time. I don't want that to get confused as if I'll get super strong and then I'll just quit and stop. (laughs) 
they're they're still going to have some benefits like they're going to still reap the rewards of that work but we don't want to have this kind of one-time deal uh that's more of a lifestyle but i would i definitely encourage folks the fitter you get now the easier it's going to be and and being in the home like being in the home of a homebound older adult like you see that you see how difficult life is the struggles that they have with some of the most seemingly simple things it is a rough life uh to lead and the fitter we get right now uh before some of that decline the better off we're going to be yeah very true and for anybody who's worked with older adults in any setting whether it's even a family member that you have around mm. one of the most common things they say when they see a young person like me, who's 24, is don't get old. And thinking about how many times I've heard that, I feel it's yeah. it's like up to me now. It's I owe it to these people who probably wish they could go back and make changes mm. to make them stronger and fitter now. And it's like when we see that firsthand, it doesn't take that much work to get on top of it to the point that you're not going to be in that same position that they're in, you know, when somebody looks at you in desperation, like think like, what would this person do if they could and act on that, you know? Oh, hundred percent. That's such a good point to, uh, to quote Julie again, stronger people are harder to kill. I don't know if Mm -hmm. that's her quote, but she writes it on hospital. (laughs) She writes it on Mark Ripito from starting strength. He's, he originally said that he said, stronger people are harder to kill and more useful in general. (laughs) <laughs> he, said, he said that a while back, but Julie, she'll take that and use it in the hospital. I like that. Yeah. So for those of you um, who don't follow her, Julie Brower, she's another physical therapist that works um, with Dustin in the modern management of the older adult, but she works a lot in acute care and she literally gets a piece of paper and writes on it. Stronger people are harder to kill and puts it on their, their whiteboard. And, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, it's the coolest thing ever, but And another thing, just based on what we were just talking about that ice, um, showed me is the, that continuum of the way you guys describe the relationship between fitness and wellness and sickness. Mm -hmm. So if you think of this scale where you can kind of fluctuate from position to position and correct me if I'm wrong in the way I picture this, but the fitter you get and the more, the higher you move up that thermometer Mm -hmm. towards a high level of fitness the longer it's going to take to regress towards Mm -hmm. sickness. Whereas if you're just chilling right in the middle of wellness, it's not going to take as much to knock you down into sickness. So like you said, build that money in the bank, like get strong. And, and I I'm not a fan of COVID-19 whatsoever, but COVID has been really helpful in that, that continuum. Cause you think about the conversations early on around, around COVID you know, who was the most susceptible? Like early on, it was old people, old people, old people, 65 and up, 65 and up. Then that narrative started to change as we learned more that it was older individuals plus comorbidities, multiple comorbidities. And then it's older individuals, the comorbidities and reduced exercise capacity. So it was showing that the fitter people are, the more resilient they are to, to COVID-19 amongst so many other health outcomes, right? But COVID really highlighted that in a very potent way. And we felt that at Stronger Life to where before COVID, because we started about four months before the pandemic. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that you guys were that new. Yeah. Yeah. Not a great time to start. (laughs) (laughs) Good good for you because you're, you're crushing it now. Yeah. 
that was it's been a rough go uh but when we started it was a lot of like aesthetic based goals you know like just some of the more common like fitness related goals and then the further we progress into the pandemic we literally have people now that say i want to i want to join stronger life because i don't want to get sick which is like that's completely new in the fitness industry that was never a conversation before no but how ever... good how good does that make you feel knowing that this is what you've been thinking all along right freaking love it freaking love it and I, I that that's not an original thought you know to us by any means if you if you do the crossfit level one course they they kind of lay that out out there but it's something that it's just so true that research is now just really catching up to uh which is which is kind of beautiful but yeah, COVID-19 has influenced that a ton, which has been really interesting to, to see. But yeah, yeah stronger people, and, fitter people are hard to kill. 100%. Yeah, 100%. And I would love to, I'll definitely go and dive into some of the, um, the hump day hustling newsletters that I've gotten that have some mm-hmm. of that research and I'll put it in, oh, the, yeah. in the show notes for anybody who's interested in seeing these mm-hmm. correlations that are black and white, you know, between level yeah. of fitness and level of sickness. And of course, COVID is what's getting all the attention right now, but this applies to, I could imagine any kind of chronic illness, osteoarthritis, like these things that we're seeing so much of can, you know, you can at least minimize your chances of, of getting that, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Wow. 100%. Dustin, this conversation has been awesome. I could totally just pick your brain all day about this stuff. And I love it. I love what you're doing. Um, just want to finish off with one final question here for you. Yeah. This podcast is centered around setting goals and achieving them with the principles of passion, perseverance, and performance. So tell me, what's a personal goal that you have right now and how are you working towards it? Yeah, this is a great question. You got to be working on something, yeah. man. You seem like a go-getter. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's been, um, this has been an area of growth for me because I haven't always been very objective. But what I've learned for myself is, and I, I think you you may relate to this. Some of the people listening may may relate to this. Is that we, especially if you're like a driven clinician and like you just can't get enough of this human performance, PT strength and conditioning. Like we, a lot of us, especially if like we're interacting online a bunch, like we live and breathe this stuff. We're always like working with people. We're trying to help them reach their goals, and a lot of our work is not necessarily tangible, right? Like I can't like hold it, smell it, feel it in terms of like the, the product or the fruit of my labor per se, right? It's like someone uh, has improved on an outcome measure or they've gotten out of pain or whatever it may be, which is super fulfilling. But what I've found for me is that whenever I get my hands dirty, do some type of project or whatever it is, like I find a ton of fulfillment in that but in a completely different way than what I do on my day to day. So all that to say, my personal goal has been to spend at least three to four hours a week on something I do with my hands. So like a house project, which I've got ton, tons right now. <laughs> we just renovated an old house, uh, build something for one of my kids, like just something that I'm doing tangibly with my hands, where when I'm done, I've got this like physical product or I can see like, oh, my effort resulted in this. And that's been huge for me from like the mental health side of things and really balanced out how much of my mental energy and focus goes into this PT strength and conditioning stuff. 
um, which it's just taken me now, you know, what, 11 years to learn that I, I can benefit from this. Um, but yeah, that's my goal. That was a long answer about that, but I felt like I had to give an explanation for why I said that. No, that's that super cool. And I mean, it's so true. And like self-care, so to speak, looks different yeah. for everybody. You know, it doesn't need mm-hmm. to be like meditating and journaling. Like if you want to get your hands dirty and build shit, like, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> like even better, you know, but um, I love that message too, for, you know, other students who are listening like myself, um, another person I connect with frequently, give her a little shout out, Amy DePeltow. She oh, said Amy's to say, awesome. she said to say hello to you. Man. And she tells me all the time that, you know, just to have this awareness that when you are so passionate as a coach, as a clinician, mm-hmm. which I totally have that bug inside of me to remember and have this awareness that it's easy to get caught up in it and, you know, not make enough time for yourself. So yeah. I'm starting to build an awareness, you know, for myself at this mm-hmm. early age, so to speak in my career. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're managing that and, you know, doing everything else that you're doing. Um, but Dustin, this was so great. Where can listeners find you, learn from you, connect, connect with you? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say a good, if people are on the gram, uh, dustinjones.dpt is my handle. So post all kinds of the ice stuff there, share some of the stronger life stuff. Um, if, if folks are curious about the continuing education side of things, um, the MMOA website is a good place, MMOA.online, uh, which just has all of our uh, modern management of the older adult classes and the email lists and podcasts and all that fun stuff. Um, so I'd say those are, those are two good, good spots uh, to find. We, yeah put all kinds of stuff out there it's and it's obviously not just me it's a team of of awesome clinicians like you mentioned uh before but we we're just trying to put out some good material and that'd be a good place to find that yeah definitely everybody listen to this in pt we know that instagram is so oversaturated with pt content but these guys are the real deal so check them out dustin's always it's, putting it's out not cool saturated videos. with older adult content. no it's not it's yeah. not and <laughs> And that's what what makes me even more excited. So definitely give them a follow. Um, Dustin, thank you so much for your time and coming on. I think listeners are going to get a lot out of this one. Thank you. I appreciate it. And you keep crushing it. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Goal Set Mindset Podcast. As you can see, old does not have to mean weak. And fitness is not just for the fit. I hope this episode changed the way you view your grandma, your older patient, or even yourself. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it on social media and tag Dustin and I so we can thank you personally for the support. Thank you so much for tuning in. And as always, we will be back next week with another episode.